Hi, this is Laura. And this is Luli. And you are listening to Astela Around the World. We will be zooming out of Brazil to explore the worlds of extraordinary global tech thought leaders in a deep dive into their stories, their inspirations, views on tech investing, and perspectives on the different aspects and trends happening in the local and global tech ecosystems. Astela is an early-stage Brazilian-based VC. Stay tuned and welcome to Astela Around the World. All right. We have here today Mark Robert with us in our podcast. It's a honor to be here, Mark. Thank you so much for accepting our invitation and uh and give us some minutes of your time for chatting with us. Um, I will go through a, a quick intro. Mark is the managing director at Stage 2 Capital and senior lecturer at Harvard Business School. Uh, prior to that, Mark served as a chief revenue officer at HubSpot, and uh, he scaled HubSpot revenues from zero to $100 million and expanded his team from one to 450 employees. Mark was ranked number 19 in Forbes top 30 social sellers in the world and uh, received his MBA from the MIT in BA and uh, mechanics engineering from uh, Leith University. He has been featured in Wall Street Journal, Forbes magazine, uh, Boston Globe, TechCrunch, Harvard Business Review, and other major publications in his uh, entrepreneur ventures. And he's also an author of the best-selling book, the sales accelerating formula using data technology and inbound selling to go from zero to a hundred million. So Mark, thank you so much uh, to joining us again. Of course. Yeah. Hey, Laura. Hey, Carolina. Happy to be here. Mark, thank you so much. We are excited to ask you a few questions today. We see you from a distance. You have uh, such an inspiring story for many of us. As Laura mentioned, you scaled revenues at HubSpot from zero to 100 million and you expanded the team to 450 people, grew to over 10,000 customers. That's what we see from a bird's eye view and your benchmark to so many SaaS companies from around the world. We would like to understand how your engineering experience came into play to build a killer sales machine. Mm. And what were the challenges that you faced in each phase of the life cycle? You were there for, I believe, over nine years. And there were probably various things that we don't see from the day-to-day and the different stages. So we would love to hear a little bit about that. Sure. That's a lot. That's a lot there, Carolina. But yeah, I'll, I'll try to, you know, kind of summarize some of the key points that honed in on the audience. But we'll just know from like, I don't know, you know, now that I hear about other awesome companies coming out, like, you know, Slack and Zoom and all that stuff, like when you read the news, you think it's, it must be so much fun to work there. And like, you know, but it's just, um, and it was fun, but it's always feels like it's a mess. You know what I mean? Like it's, (laughs) it never feels like it's like, even though the top line numbers are going great, like it just never feels like, oh, this is running so perfectly. You know what I mean? So just, and that has actually been an, an interesting lesson when people kind of dig in and hear about some of the details is like, you know, you never quite have it running smoothly. You're just trying to get it as smooth as possible. And just know that like, if you feel like that, that's just normal. 
to your point on like the engineering background, yeah, it was like our our second investor, David Scott from Matrix, who I know has spent some time down there as well. He was the one that kind of pointed out to me. He's like, oh, your engineering background would be really useful here. I was just um, operating the way I operate when I'm stressed. You know, so to your point, like Carolina, I I didn't have the traditional sales background. Yeah, I never actually did sales before HubSpot. I was an engineer in by training. I started my career writing code. I studied at MIT for my graduate work. So everything was quant oriented, you know, process quant codification. And I got very lucky that when I joined HubSpot, now we have to go back almost 20 years, right? It was 2005, 2006. We were just coming out with SaaS. The internet was kind of new. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we had just got emails like five years before that, right? So it was all kind of new. And SaaS was just coming out. And I got very lucky that because of those changes, because we were moving from selling software that was deployed on servers in the basement of an office through a LAN, a network, to the internet and SaaS and software that is consumed over the internet. That was obviously a huge change. And for whatever reason, at that time, we also moved to selling stuff on a subscription as opposed to selling like millions of dollars upfront. And when we started to be able to deploy the software over the internet, which means all you needed was a login, and we sold it on a subscription, suddenly you could sell for the first time on inside sales over the internet, over the phone. Up until then, that really wasn't happening. All the sales were happening outside. And because of the shift to the inside, suddenly we had data. Because up until that point, all the sales were happening outside and no one could get their salespeople to mark down their activity. But once it moved inside, the salespeople had to use a CRM to do their job and we started to get really good at logging all the activity. So I was very fortunate that I accidentally found myself into sales and sales leadership at that time because we finally moved to a point where we had no data to tons of data. And I could think about like, well, how can I use all this data to create a scalable and predictable sales org? And I talk about the creation of a go-to-market system. And this is a little... It's evolved a little bit since the book. Like when I wrote the book, it was sort of a rendition of what I did at HubSpot. And in the last decade, I've been spending a lot of time at Harvard Business School. I, as a faculty member, I've spent a lot of time as an investor and consultant, and I've seen a lot of these different plays. And now I've since evolved some of the components. And the system I talk about is, is a system that sits on top of the buyer journey and sales process on how like the process we're going to hold our reps accountable to it has two inputs salespeople we choose to hire and the demand gen we create to give to the salespeople and then it runs with the compensation plan and the coaching model so the coaching kind of makes sure that people are working the demand according to the sales process and it spits out three things sequentially sales activities which lead to a forecast which lead to revenue right and so it's a little hard to describe that without my typical slide. But so anyway, I just, that's how I think about the system, go-to-market system design. And then I use data to optimize each component of the system to make sure that it's predictable. All right. So like, as an example, like when it, like just haphazardly doing a sales interview, we can quantify the 10 attributes that we're going to look for in a salesperson 
we can define a scoring matrix of one through 10 on each of those criteria and we can score our salespeople on that. And the great thing about sales is we know quantitatively over time how each hire does and we can correlate performance to those attributes, right? So that's an example of like, how do you take something that's typically qualitative like hiring and quantify it so that we get better over time with that model? That's very interesting. Mark, after product market fit, it's uh, obviously that uh, founders have an ultimate goal that is to come up with a go-to-market strategy to go through the virtual cycle of uh, scaling and uh, interacting with clients and this improved product and so on. But still, I mean, a significant portion of founders spend a lot more time on product development and uh, deny or forget about the importance of uh, sales and marketing. Yeah. Why do you think this happens? And what is the main profile of, uh, of people that read your book and come up uh, to you for help to scale? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that being someone that's lived in Boston for the last like 20 years and, you know, we built HubSpot in Boston and that my book was based on that. And my roots are MIT as a student, Harvard as a faculty. The number one city where my book sells is not Boston, it's San Francisco. <laughs> and it's a lot of the product uh, founders because I think they like, I don't know, I think product and engineering are a little bit uncomfortable about sales and I don't think they really respect salespeople. And I think they don't think we need, if you need a salesperson, it's almost like a negative review on your, web, on your product. Like you should build a product that's good enough that it just sells itself. All right. Like that's what a lot of product founders believe. And I think like their sort of negativity towards salespeople is warranted because of the older way we used to sell, which was like there was a lot of like manipulation um, and game playing and that kind of stuff. And I think a lot of that's going away and that I've never advocated that type of selling. So I think that's where it kind of comes from. You know, the, the Silicon Valley, if we just talk about that for a second, like it did go through a period in you know, probably like 2006 to like 2012 or so, where there was a lot of like, you shouldn't hire salespeople. Like your product should be good enough to be distributed over the internet and just consumed. And then some of those people started to hire salespeople. They would create all these weekly active users and like 10% would convert to a customer. And one of them was like, hey, what if we just like had a salesperson call the other 90% and all of a sudden lots of sales started to happen. We've kind of, where we ended up is we've ended up in this really cool new area where, you know, I like the concept product-led growth. Like, I like that. I like PLG a lot. I don't know if you've all heard about that down there, but you should, if you haven't heard about it and you're listening to this podcast, definitely Google PLG. Because I do believe that probably not as pervasive as the SaaS business model as a disruptor, but I think it's going to be a big disruptor in the next decade. Already, we already see signs like Slack, Zoom, you know, the old, some of the original folks like Dropbox, Atlassian, some of the new folks like Calendly and Mural, um, I think it's a very disruptive model. And I think that's kind of interesting where we've ended up is like, yeah, build a great product. And if you can distribute it and sell it and get people to, uh, you know, adopt it without any people, that's great, but it's rare. Um, and we kind of lead with that motion and then integrate salespeople or customer success people wherever help is needed. Right. So I think that's why we've had the issue. And I do feel like sales is moving away from its like unethical or manipulative means. And product is evolving 
to have like this whole growth movement. That product is just not about the roadmap. It's all about growing the funnel and revenue. And I think we're coming to, we're, we're in the early sequences of really bringing product and sales together almost as a more cohesive organization. So that's really exciting. And that's like right on the forefront of um, stuff that's happening here on say the US tech scene. That's really cool. And what I had in the back of my mind as you were telling us a little bit about scaling story and is the importance of experience, especially when you're creating change. So right now you concluded how sales and product should be together. And this has been very distant to how it was in the past. And you were, you know, one of the first movers towards creating this new mentality of sales, right? And all I have in my back of my mind is like so much trial and error and so much experience to even with the engineering background. So you had the quantity experience and then you had to join it with all these layers that you were just explaining to us. And that graph that shows us what growth looks like and what growth really looks like. So that's the picture that I had in my mind while, while you were telling us the story yeah. and all this to ask you, right? We know the importance of experience, how that comes into play for real growth and to actually find a great fit. And um, so you've been teaching at Harvard Business School, entrepreneurial sales and marketing program. Yeah. So what are the key lessons that you teach based on what you've learned on the job, understanding that people there are are actually listening from you and not having this experience, what do you think is the best lesson you can give that somebody can go out there and actually put it into practice? Yeah. So um, we start off like the, and funny, this, my students are probably very similar to like the product founders that you all typically invest in and work with. And I invest in as well. You know, my students are in the full-time MBA program at HBS. They're, um, they're usually about 28 years old. There's usually half women, half men probably about a third are from outside of the US. So it's a very like very diverse um, group and not a lot of sales experience. The people that take my class typically are more interested in being product or founders or that kind of stuff. And they have that same mentality of like, they believe sales, you know, like first off, when I ask people, how do you scale sales? They're just like, you just hire a salesperson with experience in your industry and give them a quota and then have them go sell, right? And the first thing I try to explain to them is like, there's so much more to this. There's there's an entire system design that we're going to walk through, and it like it's eye open to them of how scientific this function can be. And then we walk them through uh, four modules in the class, which is the first module is about like founder selling. Like I want to teach you how to sell. Like we literally teach them how to sell. And then we move to building the first team, which is like hiring, coaching, you know, this first comp plan, the first pricing model, all that kind of stuff. Then we move to scaling and then we move to selling and non-sales roles because a lot of the students go off to stuff that's not really sales, but it has sales in it. Like they go off and be a venture capitalist. Well, guess what? When you have to go and you meet this like really like on fire entrepreneur and you got to convince them to give you, to take your money, you're selling. We teach them about raising money. Well, guess what? If you're a product founder and you got to raise your seed fund, you're selling. You know what I mean? Like, we teach them about like how to be a public company CEO. Like, you you have to sell. You have to convince your own people to join. You have to sell Wall Street. You have to sell big customers. Like, so we put them in all these different situations and apply. So that's kind of the course. So I'll just talk about like the second one on scale on the team. That's much about the go-to-market system. And I would say the main lesson there is 
all those components of your sales playbook, your go-to-market, your demand gen strategy, your hiring model. Like you can't copy your friend at another company. That's what a lot of people think is like, oh, what do you look for in a sales hire? I'm going to do that too. You've got to be aware of your outer context. And I like to define context as what are you selling? Jets, pencils, or software? Who are you selling to? Marketers or grandmothers <laughs> or teenagers? And what's the context of your company? Like what state are you at seed, series B, public? Well, are you selling in Brazil or Japan or North America? Like these are all, this is your context. And you've got to optimize your key system design components to that. So that's the main lesson from the design aspect. Like obviously, like if you're selling like fancy suits versus you're selling jets, you can imagine the different salesperson. And even in software, like if you're selling $500,000 big enterprise software, to large companies versus you're selling like a very, you know, a, a simple transactional product that's a, you know, $500 a month to land, you know, to small business owners. The type of salesperson that's going to succeed is pretty different. Right. So, so that's one of the key lessons in module two. In module one, the big lesson in founder selling is most people think that sales is just putting together a really persuasive pitch deck and delivering it. And there's been zero research <laughs> that shows that that is optimal. And there is reams and reams of research that shows that what selling is, it's the ability to get the buyer to open up about their biggest problems and then use that information to decide if you can help them and if you can help them to tailor your message to their problems. That's what selling is. And there's a lot, there's a lot to learn in doing that. Starting with how the heck do you get a stranger, a buyer on the first call to open up about their most personal problems, right? And the very simple answer, the, the first approach is like, Carolina, you know, I appreciate the time and I'm here to tell you about my company and product, but can you just start by telling me why you took this meeting? And most people will just start opening up, right? So, so it's little things like that we chat in the founder selling uh, module that we we teach. That is so impressive. It seems so simple, but it has so much uh, experience behind. It's impressive. Uh, on a single question, <laughs> I can't imagine how your <laughs> how the entire uh, course and modules are. It's so curious, amazing, Mark. And what led you move uh, from an operator uh, slash entrepreneur to investor? What made me do that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this kind of gets into a little like the philosophical life stuff you were asking about later, but like I actually haven't purposely done anything in my career in 20 years. <laughs> it's crazy. Like, you know, for the first like two, 10 or 20 years of my career, I was obviously a very like type A, like here's my plan, my 10 year plan, and I got to do this and that. And a lot of the students I work with are like that too. And as I reflect on the last, you know, 15 years or so of my career, like, I didn't mean to do any of that. I meant to go into entrepreneurship, and that's why I went to MIT to learn about it. And I had started my own company, and my first investor was Dharmesh Shah, who was the co-founder of HubSpot. And he was like, I'll only invest if you help me with my company idea, HubSpot, like when he was just like doing it himself. So every Thursday, I helped him out, and then he brought in Halligan to run the company and be the co-founder. And Halligan was like, 
I'm glad you're here every Thursday, but I just want you to sell. So that's how I got into sales is he was just like paying me and he's like, just sell. And I did. And then he convinced me to come over full time. So I didn't mean to, I didn't apply to HubSpot. I didn't mean to go into sales. Halligan kind of pushed me, suggested I do it. And it was good. And he recruited me into the company. And then like, that was obviously a huge moment that was accidental and serendipitous. And then seven years into that journey, I was having breakfast with Jill Conrath, a best-selling author in sales. And she, she was like, we were just catching up and she's like, oh, we should write a book together. <laughs> you know? And I was like, I'm not even a good writer, Jill. You know what I mean? Like, and so she, she was like, write a chapter and I'll write a chapter. And then when she read my chapter, she's like, you got to write your own book. And that's how I ended up writing a book. And it, it was a huge impact on the ecosystem. And I donate all the money to a nonprofit. So it's not meant to be like anything that's income driving, but just helpful. And then when I wrote the book, I asked a Harvard professor, because I'd been over there and MIT and other places, just like helping out with different curriculum and to write a blurb on it. And when I did, he asked me to join the faculty. And I was like, I didn't mean to be a professor. I didn't apply to Harvard. I mean, I thought it would be really cool, but obviously that was amazing a humbling request and something that's been a huge uh, honor to do. And then um, uh, as part of that, I had a lot of free time to work with startups and I met a lot of venture capitalists. And that's where I met Jay, my co-founder at Stage 2, when he was at Bessemer. And he was like really into go-to-market as an investor and then came up with the idea for Stage 2. And I said, yeah, let's give it a shot. So I didn't mean to be in, <laughs> I didn't mean to do it. It was just like, he pitched me I'd been approached to join different venture capital firms and it just wasn't for me like the traditional model. But when he came to me with like, let's start the first VC firm that's run and backed by go-to-market leaders, VPs of sales, marketing, customer success, RevOps, to help the next gener generation of entrepreneurs on go-to-market strategies. Well, now that gets exciting to me, right? And so I didn't mean to do that. He had a good idea. I said, let's give it a shot. And it took off and did really well. And so far, so far, knock on wood. I mean, these things take a little while. But so anyway, yeah, that's the answer is I, I at this point in my career, um, I guess the, the lesson there that I tell my students is definitely have your plan in your career, but be open minded to other paths as they're presented to you. Because sometimes the answers to your questions are they occur when you're not even asking the question, right? And so I've been taking a more of a Buddhist approach, I suppose, to my life and my career. And a lot of it is kind of filtered through what can make the biggest impact on the entrepreneur ecosystem, because that's what I'm very passionate about. That is so awesome. And uh, it reminds me a little bit of my uh, journey as well, because at the beginning with no experience, I tell people with a little bit of shame that I use it to make my choices, eliminating the alternatives that I simply didn't like, but not that I was choosing. Yes. And it's a relief to listen to what you're saying, because yeah. it is what it is, you know? You're feeling like maybe lazy, Laura, or you're feeling <laughs> like maybe too. But I think that's the way, you know, it's like... <laughs> Whatever you believe in, God or something, like there's, you can only control so much. And, and, and it sounds like you just kind of stuff came to you and you just filtered it out. And that's, that's great. No, what comes to me is like we make plans and God laughs, right? So, exactly. That's a good way to summarize it, Carolina. That's good. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I love reminding myself of that. 
So, you know, you started telling us a little bit about stage two, and that was uh, my next question. I believe our audience would love to hear a little bit more about the thesis and, and what makes you guys different. So I think the best way that we can learn about that is what are uh, is learning from you? What are the types of companies and founders that make you excited, right? What are you looking at and what trends do you see in the year to come? So with your way of like, how can we fit that in also into your blue ocean way of investing? Yeah. So as I mentioned, it's uh, the first firm that's run and backed by go-to-market leaders. Um, so we have like the president or CRO or CMO or had our customer success at companies like Salesforce and Oracle and LinkedIn and Zoom and Gone and Snowflake and Asana. And, you know, we have a lot of the unicorns represented in our investor base. And they're all motivated not just for generating financial returns, that's actually lower on their list than, obviously it's important, but like it's, uh, you know, helping the next generation of entrepreneurs. And our thesis is that uh, as organizations scale from product market phase to through the seed A, B, C, there's just a lot of go-to-market execution that's pretty basic for a go-to-market and experienced professional that are just being messed up. And they're being messed up because there's not enough go-to-market knowledge amongst the investor base. You know, I think today's investors, they're brilliant but they come from more finance backgrounds, more corporate strategy backgrounds. Sometimes they come from product. There's not a lot that come from go-to-market. And so we just wanted to add that extra ingredient to the ecosystem. And so where do we invest? Um, we don't invest uh, pre-revenue because we feel that you're at the product market phase and you're better off partnering with an investor who has more of a product and engineering background to help you get through that. So we're really good that once you have product market fit, you're right at scale. So we try to catch companies at that stage that usually occurs around half a million to one and a half million US revenue uh, annual. To be quite frank, um, most of our investments have occurred when the company's not raising capital. Here in the US, um, a lot of firms will raise like sort of a seed round to get through product market fit. And the seed rounds are quite big now, like a million, two million sometimes. And then they expect it to get two or three million in revenue before they raise an A round. And so we typically find or engage with organizations in between those rounds and do sort of like, it's not a really a bridge because a bridge has a bad connotation, but just like a way to partner up together with some capital and help them get to that A and beyond. Uh, by setting up the um, sales, the go-to-market function in the correct way. And so myself and my partners take the lead on an in-depth assessment on the current company context, because we learned how context is very important. So we really learned the context. And then we, we help them with their strategy and execution. And then we bring in our investors. We bring in the right investors at various stages, right? So we have, last week, we had a company that was like setting up their first account-based marketing function in the marketing group. So we brought on three of our investors from places like SalesLoft and SurveyMonkey and uh, other companies that have set up an account-based marketing program in the past and had sort of a strategic session for that CMO and CEO to learn more about how ABM was implemented. So that's an example of how we'd bring in and leverage our investor base to help these new companies. 
Very interesting. And Mark, what are your views on the other ecosystems? Like, how do you see LATAM innovation ecosystem evolving? And uh, yeah. do you have any view over the next five years of how we compare to what you, you saw in the Silicon Valley over the, mm. in the US over those uh, many years? How do you see us going? <laughs> very good. Very bullish. So, and Laura, you reminded me at one point that uh, for Caroline's question that I wanted to throw in. Uh, in terms of themes that we invest in, obviously we're investing in B2B software, but um, very bullish on product-led growth and PLG, right? We don't just invest in that, but we like those, when we look at a category, we would prefer to be on the side of the PLG um, attacker if that is possible in the category. So just another thematic aspect. Um, but yeah, Laura, so I've been down, I've only down, been down to Brazil three times. I've really enjoyed those trips and meeting everyone. I went, came down in 2018 for a couple of speeches separately and met a lot of the entrepreneurs and then came down in 2020, right before the pandemic in late January to meet a lot of investors and also to, I think I did something with Edson actually and did some work with the venture, the, uh, the startup community. I'm super bullish on the Brazilian specifically um, community. I think when I came down in 2018, I think there were two unicorns as measured by US billion dollar valuation. And then when I came back in 2020, I think there were like 20 of them. That's insane. That's like really good growth. And what I've noticed is unlike other regions, like maybe Europe, I don't want to offend Europe or anything. Like I think I'm very bullish actually on what's happening in Europe as well. But the European entrepreneurs tend to be a little more skeptical of whether the best practices that you're recommending are applicable to their region versus Brazilians are just like sponges. <laughs> they're just like, tell me how to do it. You know what I mean? And they're just like learning, 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 implementing. So I, I don't know. I haven't seen stats on like, you know, market valuation creation, market value creation, that kind of stuff. But I just, I'm very bullish because of culturally that curiosity and openness to learning and the work ethic within the Brazilian entrepreneur ecosystem. I do teach a case on one of the entrepreneurs called Ambar. I don't know if you know A-M-B-A-R. Uh, it's a like a construction construction software company. I met the very talented CEO through uh, the exec ed program at HBS, and we teach that case. And they're doing really well, really well. And um, I haven't made an investment down there. We haven't, only because I don't mean to be like offensive. I don't th- hope this doesn't offend anyone, but like, it's very hard to get our hands around the political and currency risk in Brazil, you know, for not being there. So we have to have to think about down the road how we do that. So we're we're still kind of an early fund ourselves. So we're still very focused on the U.S. We have done some investments in Europe and Australia and other places. We certainly can make investments, but that's kind of our hesitation right now. Otherwise, I'm like really bullish on the ecosystem. Well, we'll be more than happy to help you uh, bridge this gap. Uh, <laughs> yes, for sure. For sure. <laughs> and be alongside your journey in Brazil, um, if you will. I mean, for sure. And Mark, I mean, we used to ask uh, this more philosophical question to venture capitalists because we see a lot of uh, people willing to change the, the world. And, yeah. and then um, it's uh, one of the questions we like to uh, compare how people feel. So um, how optimistic are you with the future and life uh, and humanity <laughs> as a whole? And, uh, and how far we can dream about creating the solutions we need for sustainability and, and all those issues that, uh, that we are facing now? 
Yeah, there's so much going on right now. And it's good stuff. Like the inequality divide is a big one. And I, you know, it's obviously not the main theme for stage two, but I do, I try to do a lot between my work at Harvard and who we've brought onto the stage two team and different like mentoring systems that we've put together in the short term. And I think it's finally getting the right amount of attention, at least up here to make an impact. I think like more broadly, you're saying philosophically, (laughs) I don't know. The thing that I can't get past is robots are going to do most of the jobs. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, and I think that's what we've been talking a little bit, starting with like Andrew Yane and our, our presidential candidate. I, you know, we have this thing called capitalism, right? And it capitalism sort of thrives on 95 to 98% of people that want to work can work. You know, like it thrives on a pretty like strong middle class. And I just don't see how like robots are going to do most of those jobs. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I think what needs to happen is like philosophically, you know what I mean? Like if we move from 200 years ago as like a, a, a species that pretty much was self-sustaining, like we had our farm, we grew our food, we ate our food, we drank our water, like we were self-sustaining as a, a family or just an individual and move to a capitalist structure with currency where you work and you get paid for what you do. I don't want to call it socialism because people are against that, but yeah, I just don't understand like how we how the robots are going to do all the jobs, right? So it's like, we have to disassociate ourselves from like the materialism that we've grown up with in capitalism. What you do is what you get paid for. And just like accept the fact that like, as a species, you can look at it one way of like, oh, that's really bad socialism, really bad. Like, but you can also look at it from the perspective that we as a species are the first species that have evolved to have such strong science that we don't have to exert any energy to put food on our plate and a roof over our head. Like the robots can do that for us. And what that means is now we can do whatever we want in our life, whatever makes you happy. You can teach, you can be a nurse, you can help people, you can landscape, you can garden, you can, you can invent, you can run, you can whatever, all of that. It's just you don't get paid for that. What you choose to do is not what you make. So I know that's crazy and not well-formed and stuff, but I just can't get past the, we can all say, oh, that's not going to work socially, but what about the fact that robots will do all the jobs? We can't stop that. (laughs) I'm totally with you. And it's so funny you mentioned this because my whole political and worldview has changed after I started following Andrew Yang. And I can see I have a totally different perspective. I'm not like, it's not like I'm a huge donor to him, nor did I even vote for him. Like, it's not like, it's just he's talking about that universal basic income. I don't think we're ready for it yet. That, but I'm just saying, I you want you ask about philosophical life humanity. <laughs> That's the one I've kind of been just thinking about a lot. You know? No, I'm with you. Like yeah. he's talking about things we didn't question, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. It's just an, it's a new perspective that I didn't yeah. used to think about. So um, exactly, totally with you. And to that point, we just wanted the conversation is is amazing. We wanted to continue. But we all have we all have things to do, places to be. So we gotta go change the world, right? We, we have to go change the world. So we just wanted to ask you one final icebreaker for everyone to learn something that you are currently excited about and something that is scaring you. I think you spoke a little bit about something that's scaring you, but but go ahead. 
I think I've spoken about all of them. The one I'm most excited about in the entrepreneurial ecosystem is product-led growth. The one I'm scared about is robots will do everything and we're not planning for it. And the kind of lesson learned is just like, you know, don't let serendipity drive your career a little bit. Like have your plan, but be open to to what life delivers you. You know, that just uh, looking for those signals. And I think maybe I'll leave us with one comment there is, I think it's a Steve Jobs quote, which is like, you can't connect the dots looking forward only backwards. You know what I mean? And that that's like happened to me every time. Like, how do you know? How do you know you should have gone to Harvard? How do you know you should have started stage two? And it's one of those things where when the idea is presented to you, all the seemingly unrelated experiences you've had in your life up until that make sense. You know what I mean? Like you didn't, it's not like I went through the last 20 years being like, oh, I want to be a venture capitalist when I hit the age of 40. I didn't have that. But when Jay said, hey, let's start stage two, the first, you know, VC back, running back by go to my every experience I had from studying as an engineer, MIT business school, HubSpot, Harvard Business School, it all connected to lead to that. And it was the same with HubSpot and all that stuff. So so that's just like an addition to what we've been talking about is Steve Jobs said it great. You can only connect the dots looking backwards. And that's when you know that that's what you should do next. Oh my God. What amazing conversation. I wish I could stay um, longer, but Anyway, Mark, uh, and as you said, we have to <laughs> yeah. change the world. So, so <laughs> thank you so much. I mean, it was a wonderful conversation. Uh, I can imagine the faces of people listening to you and having like a good moments with our podcast. So I, it will be amazing when this uh, released. And uh, we'll keep in touch. I would love to guide you through a, a trip in Brazil and uh, and bridge the gap. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, we'll be down. Yeah, we'll be down. Like we have a lot of investors down there. So I would say at least twice a year. Um, so just like if something's coming up that if there's a big conference that we could build it around or whatever, um, let keep you in the loop. It makes me think that I should uh, that I should organize a conference to have you here. <laughs> uh, that'd be fun. <laughs> nice. Thank you, Mark. Interesting. Thank you so much. And uh, it sure. would be a pleasure to continue touching base. Thank you.